And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 265 of Panelology. I'm Alex. And I'm Brian. How you doing this week, Brian? Uh, I'm okay. Uh, had a had a busy week, but got a lot done, so, you know, I guess that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I did not get as much done on the reading comics side as I wanted, but, you know, hey, that's how it goes sometimes. You know what? I did enough reading for the both of us. <laughs> yes, um, you did. Sadly, we have yet to develop an actual hive mind, so I know that doesn't do you any good. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. At least not in terms of the stack of comics you'll have to catch up on at some point. <laughs> yeah, at, at some point. <laughs> Theoretically, someday, when you have, I don't know, vacation or something? I, 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 maybe I just build them up till I retire, and then... <laughs> there you know. go. Tune in in 10, 15 years for the <laughs> exactly. Director's Commentary edition of Panelology, in which Brian Mysterious Science 3000s himself. I, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do we're, we're going to do a uh, maybe it's a separate podcast where it's just a uh, a back in time where I act like I've actually gone back in time and I'm reading <laughs> these old books that I need to catch up on. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> Brian refutes is it still good? <laughs> was it it's called was it still good? <laughs> like, yeah. But was it, though? <laughs> I have had the realization this week that owning a home has broken something in me. And now whenever I have a long weekend, this is not the first time I've had this urge. It's the first time I've noticed it as a pattern. Now whenever I have a long weekend, I get this urge to, like, go through old boxes and throw things out and declutter. Mm-hmm. And, like, don't get me wrong, it's cathartic and productive, and I appreciate having the time for it. I just judge myself for the person I've become because those things are true. Yeah. I mean, well, it takes effort to, to keep a to keep an organized life when you have a big old house to, with full of stuff. That's true. It does. Yeah. And, like, frankly, I should probably take more time than just the occasional long weekend. But maybe... We should be guaranteed more than six paid holidays in a year, America. Hey, that took a turn. I didn't plan on it. Let's talk about comics. Don't disagree, though. No, it's absolutely true. Action Comics, number 1031. Brian got caught up on this this week. I did get caught up on Action Comics. I and mean, you know what? I'm glad I did, too. I'm glad you did, too. Our main feature is War World Rising. Uh, this week's issue featured part two. This is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, with art by Danielle Sampere, colors by Adriano Lucas, and letters by Dave Sharp. Brian. Yes, sir. How perfect is this art team for a Superman book? Oh my god, right? Oh my, like, I did not, I, I, I don't know if I just didn't expect it, but like, I opened the book and I was like, maybe I think maybe Superman should always be drawn like this. This is real good. <laughs> and like, John and, and... 
car like all of them like it just it just fits even the action sequences like they have energy and they have motion but they're also just gorgeous and like these wide cinematic scenic shots well what i think part of what works about it is like there's some there's some panels right where they're like out in the sun and he's got somebody in his arms and he's flying and he's like in the sky and like everything's bright and lit up and all this stuff and then there's some you know like four or five pages later where he's down underwater in atlantis and like there's these super heavy shadows and like and it, it, I don't know. Like I said, it works. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Uh, I also like the the sort of mystery world building that we're getting here with. Uh, we've talked before about John's concern about Superman sort of disappearing and these rumors about why it might be the case. But the sort of building a cosmic lore around that, I think is really, really cool and really clever here. Yeah. Well, and I I love this mystery of why are why is this group of people speaking this lost dialect of Krypton? Right. Right. And what is their connection to Warworld? What does it have to do with an issue 1030, this secret about the core of Warworld that we had hinted mm-hmm. at but haven't learned because I I imagine this has to be connected. I I think I shared my theory with you last time, but cut it out of the episode. I believe that's correct, yes. I'm going to leave it in the episode this time, uh, and let Brian vouch for the fact that I did say this an issue ago. But I think part of Warworld is going to be built on either some piece of Krypton, or like an uh, 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 an Argo... I think it's the animated series like spun off Argo as a different planet. Or like a colony. Right. But yes. some sort of Kryptonian space, some sort of Kryptonian, either a piece of the planet or a piece of some colony, is a part of Warworld. Well, I mean, but, that's a good theory, Alex, but you've never ever mentioned this before. What do you Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> fine. <laughs> fine. Now, Let totally me just cancel the check on that bribe. <laughs> he totally didn't tell me that last, last time we talked. Oh, that was just too easy, though. I know. I knew. Look, when I gave you that much power, I knew you would abuse it. Of course. I would have been disappointed in you if you hadn't, frankly. Why did, why did you sting me, Scorpion? Because I'm a Scorpion. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> what nobody tells you is that the frog, that's his kink. <laughs> I've spent years and years building up an immunity to Scorpion poison. <laughs> I don't know why in this case now the frog is Bane. You were made in the darkness. I was born here. <laughs> Perfect. Frog Bane. It's it's like it's like it's like oh shit, I can't even talk now. Uh, it's like Throg but Bane. <laughs> Alright, uh DC Marvel, I'm gonna need you to to make a crossover happen now. I know I say this a lot, but I'm gonna need Throg versus Frogbane? <laughs> Perfect. Oh my god. That's just it's just such a wonderfully pure concept. I, I can't wait. <laughs> I mean, just picture a frog breaking another frog's back over its leg. It's like exactly. so well, ridiculous. I, gonna, I, I mean, I was gonna say breaking its legs, you know, the whole frog legs thing. Well, that's a little more mobster mafioso. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, we have digressed in an amusing but strange way. 
Yes. So on brand. Oh, I was gonna say it's us. Perfect. Yeah. Um but action comics so so good. Like this is a this is a, I, I love this because this is now kind of like the second arc that we've had that is like, oh, is this what happened to Superman? And you know, we have the benefit of knowing from future state kind of what it actually is. Right. But I love how it's still being presented as a kind of a we don't know. And and it's presented as a we don't know through John and Kara don't know. Well, yeah. and it, 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 like a lot of Infinite Frontier that I think uses Future State in a way that feels more intentional and present than probably any other DC flash forward to the future we've had in the past, mm-hmm. is that it, whether you've read it or not, it still tells its story. And I think it still tells its story effectively. But if you've read it, it leverages Future State to let you either connect dots or see patterns or like, you know, but then can see sort of how the 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 way things are shaping give intention to what had happened. Yes. Why would Superman go get trapped on Warworld? Okay, well, maybe there's some piece of Krypton's history there that he wants right. to save. And what I really can't wait for is at some point, because we know this, we know this is true, that, that Future State was presented as a, like, given the current state, the, the most likely future. Right? Yes but not a unavoidable future. Well, but in Future State Gotham, we actually hear Future State, the, the ongoing, right? The, or the yes. miniseries, the yep. current Infinite Frontier book set mm-hmm. in that time. It does call that inevitable. Uh, I, I, I still feel at some point, and a part of this is just a little metagaming in that it's how comic books sure. work eventually over time, right? At some point, it's gonna it's gonna have to deviate, and I'm waiting well, for that first big reveal of. And here's the thing: I could easily see it being something like, you know, oh, Superman disappears and is gone forever after this. Nobody's heard from him since then, right? I have the metaphor, Brian. I've yeah. got it. Okay. Future state is an escape room. Okay. Infinite Frontier is telling how we end up in this escape room. Dodging the worst parts of it is how do you get out? Okay, I can see that. Can yeah, see that. like, but like something like a big misdirect of it's him being stuck on War World or going there and not getting out is not him. What is the big him disappearing? Right. right? Like that misdirect would be a real good example of what i'm talking about when i say like at some point there's going to be a big reveal that's a break from sure and one could argue that maybe we learn what that is in the house of l future state one shot very very possible yeah um because we know at some point he goes back to earth because Mm -hmm. uh superman versus imperious lex yeah and he plus he lives in the sun sure yeah (laughs) (laughs) um also that yeah. The other thing I want to talk about in Werewolf Rising, and then we will we will maybe briefly touch on Midnighter and then move on. Okay. Is I love the way that we are building up this new uh Mongol in a way that feels different and scarier than Mongol because Mongol Mongol to me historically is like that lame villain who gets one storyline. And it's the same yeah. over and over. He but, suffers uh, yeah. a little bit from Bane disease. Yep. Um and and it's always the same big, super strong, dumb brute. 
And this Mongol is scary to the people around him in a similar way, but is smarter about how to leverage that. He understands the sort of power that comes with that and builds almost this cult-like base around him purely controlled by this fear. It makes it easy to see why in Future State he had the emblem on his chest he did. Yeah. Well, you know who who this version reminds me a bit more of is Darkseid. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But without the whole I'm a god thing, like he, he, I don't think he thinks he's a god, but like he is the absolute ruler. And in a way that's similar, but a little bit different. Yeah. If someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes, Mongol. <laughs> that's right. Um, But no, you're right. And it makes him, it does make him much, feel like much more of an actual threat. Yeah. Like yeah. even, even free of him. The fear that this possibly Kryptonian woman feels having the chains removed from her while she's unconscious, mm-hmm. it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Like when someone's so afraid of you that they won't let people take chains off of them because they've been told not to remove them. Like, yeah, that's some pretty uh, ingrained psychology there. Yeah. Uh, we also have as our backup part three of The Passenger. This is written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, with art by Michael Avon Oming, colors by Taki Soma, and letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, what did you think getting caught up on this, Brian? Um, this is a very interesting Midnighter story, and I think, honestly, this is something I would almost like to reread once all the pieces of it are out. Yeah, this one, more than... It's not the only thing that has me thinking about this in in Infinite Frontier. But more than a lot of Infinite Frontier, it makes me wonder how they're going to collect some of these stories. Mm -hmm. Because I think if you wanted to take, I mean, even including maybe the Future State chapters in it, the Future State chapters and these backup pages, and uh, we'll talk soon about August solicitations, but we learn in August that we will be getting, as the final chapter, a Midnighter Annual that will wrap this story up. You've got enough for a whole trade, I think, between I was say, all of that. I think, I think you could collect all of this as a single trade. Yeah. And I think that would be, to me, maybe an ideal way to read it. Yeah, maybe so. Um, I agree with you. I think that because of the time travel, reading it all at once would help a lot. I'd, yeah. But I love so much the the tension between Midnighter and just the voice of Trojan in his head. Yes. Um, also, the, the deeper this book goes, the more, in a way I love, on the nose, the name Trojan feels. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's right there on the tin, Midnighter. Like, like, Why are you this dumb? <laughs> well, I mean, it's Midnighter, so. <laughs> I know. Make better decisions, man. <laughs> all right we have spent a long time on action and should yeah, we move did. on we should move on as a quick programming note we are going to actually call an audible and uh hit milestone returns next week brian hasn't gotten a chance to read it yet i have talked about it already in the past so a reminder it's out it's fantastic we'll get a little more in depth next time uh I'll just say this though: if you haven't, if you're on Twitter and haven't followed Nicholas Draper Ivy yet, go do that because he's going to be huge coming out of this. I think. Speaking Mr- of that Midnighter backup story this week, <laughs> indeed, <laughs> yeah, Mister Miracle, the Source of Freedom, number one. 
This is written by Brandon Easton with art by Fico Osio, colors by Rico Rinzi, and letters by Rob Lee. I was excited for this going into it, just because I loved the, the Future State Mr. Miracle stuff. I didn't entirely know what to expect from this. Uh, we knew it would be kind of about about Mr. Miracle dealing with sort of declining stardom. And that's true, but I feel like that's just scratching the surface of what's going on here. 100%. Yeah, this is... Uh, I, I, I think... I think what I expected was a lot more of kind of like those backups that we saw in uh, in Future State, right? With just him going around Gotham or uh, Metropolis doing stuff. Well, and I think something that feels more like an origin, right? Yeah. Like, even though it's bit. not an origin, like, a, a, why does he go from being magician to superhero? Explicitly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, this is not that... No, this is. I think the central, the central. Oh <laughs> What's I up? just, I just, I don't know why this just connected in my head, but it, you, you realize who this character is, right? It's Booster Gold version zero. <laughs> I mean, there is a yes, there is definitely in that same sort of like Scarlet Pimpernel to Zoro to Batman. Yes, exactly. Like, there's definitely a little bit of that that seeps into Booster Gold and that seeps into into Mr. Miracle here. It's why I always love that Batman's the one person who actually gives Booster Gold credit other than Ted Cord because like they're both pulling the exact same grift at a certain level. But but just the whole, you know, a successful marketing franchise that <laughs> yeah. that you've got to support in a weird odd way and yeah. Exactly. Um, the core of this to me, at least in this first issue, and I think the last page of this maybe changes the math a little going forward, or makes that oh. equation more complex going forward. Hands down, yes to that. The core of this to me is the concept that the biggest reason Mr. Miracle does not want to unmask is because when he is in costume he does not have the same baggage in public that comes with being a black man in America. Mm -hmm. And I like that we're seeing more stories like this told in comics. I am glad that we are seeing more stories like this told in comics. Um, it's certainly not something I feel phenomenally qualified to talk on, but I like the way this is executed. I like the nuance that this is executed with. Well, I don't think you have to understand it from a point of view of like knowing how how you know a, a person of color would feel. I think you can understand that it's just a reality that if he oh, yeah. unmasked, he would be treated differently. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's right. no question of that to me. And I I only had just to be like I'm not trying to say I'm going to talk about this through that lens of experience because I'm. Absolutely oh, not. I don't no, have that no. experience and never will. But I am glad that that a creative team that can talk about it is. Then we then we get that other side of this, which is the whole. Um, so all of his appearances and like this big social movement on you know in social media and all this is that he is has stolen this identity of Mister Miracle and is you know, uh, not the, not really Mr. Miracle and that he needs to unmask and like this whole thing. 
Which is Man. somebody messing with him. Somebody is trying to to oh yeah assassinate him as a, a character assassinate him. Yeah. Um. I also want to talk about the other piece of this uh, that fits in, I think, kind of between those. That is, he tries to go on a date and realizes he has nothing to talk about as himself except that, except the business of being a star and just absolutely bombs this date because he's only talking about, like, revenue and marketing cuts and all this just the business of being famous that's entirely unrelatable to the wonderful firefighter he's going out with. Yeah. And, like, it really creates this, I think, effective who-are-you kind of tension. How do you resolve... How do you resolve that ability to move through society in a mask without the weight of, of yourself in America versus having a self? Well, I, I, I do. I think it is. I, I think it was put in here very intentionally to to uh, emphasize or make you realize that when he says, you know, I, the only time I feel free is when I'm in a mask. That's where he's invested his life. Yeah. Right. This... Is is in the is in Mr. Miracle, not in his person or who he is outside of that. And it becomes this thematic way of escape. Yes. That then in other contexts, <laughs> escape, he can't escape. And then it also sets him up for the, the, the piece you're talking about, which is challenging his legacy as Mr. Yep. Miracle. It is challenging, does he have a right to this name, to this mother box? Does the way he uses those things justify his having them? And then how do you feel about this character that shows up on the last page? Um, A little confused at first, because I had to be like, well, maybe we should call spoilers. Um, yeah, a little that's... confused at first, just around a detail of this character. Okay. Um, but generally excited to see where this goes. Like, well, given everything we've talked about it so far, I think it's a smart choice of antagonist for Mister Miracle. Yeah, this is very definitely a a hand grenade that has been thrown in this room, and there's a lot of questions about where did this hand grenade come from, and uh, how powerful is it, and um, <laughs> uh, how long before it actually goes off, and is is it really a hand grenade, or did somebody just throw a dummy in here? Right? Yeah. <laughs> and now we'll call spoilers. Yeah. Because who is this metaphorical hand grenade, Brian? The only Scott, the only child of Scott and Barta Free, Navir Free, never free, never right. What well, yes, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Just just because we had to get the pun in there, we had to okay, get the wordplay. Fine. Um, <laughs> Navir Free, never free. Yeah. <laughs> this is not the child who we saw in the Tom King Mister Miracle, right? I mean, I I don't. I don't think so, but I mean, like, had they shown up with a vegetable tray, then I would have had no doubt. Well, yes, definitely. And frankly, I think it was rude of them not to bring. One. I mean, really? Come on. Um, no, I think this is such a smart, such a smart choice because the thing that feels not strange, like it's not weird to me that this Mister Miracle has no connection to Scott Free, but it feels very like almost breaking the rules in comics. How little they have to do with each other for for mm. the legacy to pass on this way. Yeah, 
So I mean, I think, there's there's definitely characters that have taken up a mantle that didn't have, you know, like weren't trained by or like the sidekick of whoever. Sure. And yeah, he was trained fine. by the yeah. first Mr. Miracle. It's just a different, it's a different path. The branch it forked is. and they're it on is. different, different branches at this point. Uh, but I think it's in the context of a story about identity, a smart time to raise this question. I I I don't disagree. There's a you know there's several characters that exist that have had um kind of different versions of that character as different writers have taken especially you see this a lot with characters who you know they have like a run of like you know I don't know 15 20 issues of something right mm-hmm. and then it's like 10 years before you really hear from them again. Yep. And then they get picked up by some other team and written, and like they're they're essentially almost a different character. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely name you some characters who we're seeing for the first time in the time that I've been reading comics. Yeah, I think it's really interesting when someone takes one of those characters and tries to, um, essentially write an. I don't want to say an explanation, but writes a a story about them where they recount that history that makes all of that work and fit together. Yeah. And I think that may be part of what we're kind of seeing here. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think at a certain level, this is probably the least broadly known version of Mr. Miracle. I mean, you can make so. an, so. you can make an argument that Scott Free is well known and either of the other two are obscure. Sure. But I think this is probably the one people know the least, because at least the other has some connections to Batman and has some connections to Scott. This right. one you don't really see come up even in other characters' stories. Agreed. So, I am here I for like this. It, though. I love I, it. I, I, I'm definitely up for num- number two here. Yeah, yep. this is going to be worth reading, I think. Speaking of number two issues, Robin, number two. Holy crap. Okay. Written by Joshua Williamson, art by Gleb Melnikov, colors by Luis Guerrero, and letters by Troy Pateri. I don't know if this was my favorite book this week, but it absolutely had my favorite character in it. Well, okay. I, I do want to say one thing. If I've learned anything, it is, there are a few ways to immediately make Brian love a book, and giving a smarmy version of Rose Wilson a platform is one of those ways it absolutely is and what's so insanely amazing is that that's not the character i'm talking about no i know it's not but like as soon as rose was 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 in the capacity she was in this book i'm like okay no brian's gonna love this and then we get to i do this character and i will let you have the floor brian uh, it, I mean, it shouldn't be a shock. Well, I mean, it was a shock to, to Damien, but um, <laughs> because she killed him last issue. Damien Wayne, eat your heart out. Oh, my God. Flatline is very, I mean, there can be no doubt this character was written specifically for who she is to Damien Wayne. Yeah. Like, there can be no better... As she puts it at the end, frenemy, than, <laughs> than this character for Damian Wayne. Like, it is just all of the perfect button-pushing pieces for him. It's almost like an older sister vibe, right? Kind of, yeah, but there's, oh, but you know there's going to be some flirting going on there. Probably. 
Yes. Much to much to Damien's own chagrin and against exactly. his better judgment. Exactly. Oh, it's she's so like so Which you what, mentioned the yeah. frenemies thing. I just I have to note the like repeated references now across two issues to Damien being into manga, then mentioning enemies to frenemies as a thing. Like yes, yes I, I, I see I see where you're going, and I think you're right. But <laughs> I love the in universe trope mentioning. Oh, absolutely. Anything I love, that, makes I love me that happy. Rose Rose calls him out on it too. But um, yeah. So one of the things is we we find out a little bit more about like the rules of what's going on here, and yes, you know, I, clearly Flatline killed Damien at the end of the last issue. So when he wakes up at the beginning of this issue, we very I, I love that they didn't drag this out either. By the way, yeah, um, they very clearly tell us, yeah, you you can't die on Lazarus Island. The first the third, three times, the third death sticks. The first two yeah. times you come back, correct. So you get you get you get three deaths on, and so he has now used up one of his. Yeah. Um. So, and the idea behind that is, um, you know, that way you don't have to hold back when you're fighting in the in in the kind of this tournament, mm-hmm. right? And when I love how that frees Damien to be the best slash worst of himself. Yeah, it's it's like this perfect perfect scenario for showing the difference between Damien and Bruce, right? Yeah. Because Bruce would double down and say, no, I'll find a way to win this without killing anybody. Exactly. Damien's like, no, fundamentally, fundamentally Damien, at the core, I, I, I am an assassin. Damien goes on a fucking murder spree. He he does. He he like when he finds this out, he's like, oh really? And takes out like ten people. He does a montage in real time. <laughs> he does. And the best part of and the the, the 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 payoff for all of this then is he literally, and I mean, it is just like in like two pages of nothing but panel after panel after panel killing these people. He finishes and, you know, lands and looks over and flatlines standing there and he gives her the, you know, I'm watching you. I'm coming for you next. And she just winks at him. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Like, I, it, there's no audio portion of that, so I don't. I can't. I, I guess I can't make it my quote of the week, but it absolutely is. <laughs> the wink is my quote of the week. <laughs> Brian's wink of the week. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> uh, I love it. It is so so good. Yeah, this is just fantastic. And then we find out. So Rose then goes through and kind of lists out who his. Uh, you know, most dangerous competition on this island. Yeah, I love that he's like, you didn't name yourself. Yeah, I'm here for other reasons. It, well, exactly. That's where I was getting to is, yes, yeah, she's not there for the actual tournament, but entering the tournament is the only way she could get there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I am a little bit curious about what that's about. So I also love that we learn who uh, Flatline, whose who's sidekick Flatline is. Yes. Uh, we get a tie to, I'm not going to say who, but I will say a tie to a Batman Incorporated era character. Yeah. And I think that's a fun, just a fun layer to add to a Damian Wayne, Damian Wayne story. Yeah. And then I love, there's just like two of these in particular I want to point out. One is uh, uh, a 10-year-old boy named XXL. Who, 2XL, if you're nasty. 
who, who, as Rose describes him, his ego makes you look humble. (laughs) He has an entourage-style posse that just follows him around and cheers him on. Yes. He is the worst. Yeah, yes. All you need is one panel to know he is the worst. The worst, Uh uh-huh. Like anybody that can make that makes Damien look like you know a a, a mild mannered <laughs> conservative yeah. yes well uh, the other is Hawk and mm-hmm. this is so I have a couple of questions about speaking this. of characters who we haven't seen in a decade this is Connor Hawk right yes okay yeah I thought so but yeah um yeah and he's pretty vicious. Yeah, but we get a moment that makes it look like it's in some way out of his control, right? He starts apologizing at one point. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely going to be a a big piece of this story here, definitely. Yeah. Um but what we find out is essentially Rose has offered to and the reason that she's telling him all this is she has offered to train him. I need it. I need it so badly, Brian. And of course Damien's reaction is I'm the son of Batman. What what could you possibly teach me? A <laughs> couple pages later, she gets the drop on him. Yeah. Yeah. And she 100% rightly points out Damien's biggest problem. And that is, he is he's so constantly on that, you, you know, the, it... it it wears out like you can't you can't the 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 idea you can't constantly stay at peak tension right, right. that's yeah. how you get burnout yeah that's i mean the the spring you know eventually lessens because it's stretched to its maximum all the time right yeah and so that's where she takes them at the end of this is what you don't ever do what you don't know how to do your weakness is that you don't know how to let that tension off you don't know how to have fun beach party (laughs) oh this is this is uh, this book is tailor-made for me i think i love this so much speaking of books that feel tailor-made for brian damn right and also me teen titans academy number three Written by Tim Sheridan, pencils by Rafa Sandoval and Alejandro Sanchez, inks by Jordi Tarragona and Alejandro Sanchez, colors by Alex Sinclair, letters by Rob Lee. Brian. Yes. Last issue, you posited a theory to me. I did. That I still think is more likely and better grounded than the theory I am going to posit back to you. Well, I, I do have, I, before you do that, I do have one adjustment to mine, and that is I have actually, the, the percentages of mine being correct, I have lessened off on for one particular reason. Okay. And that is literally everybody in this book calls him kid. Ah. Which makes me think that it's not somebody of the age of Corey and Dick and Donna. Fair. Yeah. I'm going to throw a theory out there that I think is probably not the most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think is impossible. I wonder if this is not a character from Earth 3. No. A lot of this issue focuses on trying to mess with Amanda Waller's plans. Like sort of playing both sides, playing Waller and the Titans, and then sort of 
causing chaos and stopping Waller. Um, you'll recall that in Future State, Waller ends up moving to Earth-3 and, uh, sort of turning it into her own playground with the Suicide Squad. And we saw her, her, uh, Task Force Z, her ultimate weapon, the, like, Stasis Frozen Crime Lords. I wonder if this isn't some sort of, like, freedom fighter would normally be a villain on our earth like uh who's the was not Wizkid? that's an x-men character gizmo Gizmo. like like an earth three gizmo or someone like that um Hmm. but i also mentioned this because in august we get the beginning as a backup in oh no i think it's one of the stories in batman urban legends we get okay. Task Force Z, uh, a, a story starting in Batman, which it sounds like they're setting up as a zombie thing, but I have to believe has something to do with seeing Task Force Z on Earth three. Well, if you did you did you look at the premonition that Raven had at the beginning of this? Yes. Did 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 you see that middle panel? Uh, please hold. I have dug out my issue. You know, that does look kind of zombie-esque, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? And who, uh, the person at the top, it doesn't look like Trigon. Because there would definitely be... Ares. It looks a lot like Ares. I think so, too. I definitely think so. So maybe there is a Task Force Z connection to this zombie thing, and we're doing a little, like, clever branding to hide the the Earth-3 connection? Maybe... Because that's also around the same time that the Crime Syndicate miniseries finishes. Yeah. Yeah, that's very... And maybe, I mean, maybe it's something as simple as, you know, this is Dick Grayson from Earth 3. Yeah. A uh, younger Dick Grayson from Earth 3. It would be. It would be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or Tim. Or, or Damien. That would be weird. I'd be here for it, but that would be oh, weird. But you know what? But the rest of those Teen Titan characters from that Damien version are here. Yeah, that's well, true. Minus minus one now. Yeah, which I'm super torn about and well, conflicted about. But there's a good reason that we'll there talk is. about when we talk about this week's books. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of where my brain has got because you know me, I'm always going to look for weird connections between things. But yeah. bringing bringing Suicide Squad into it makes me think it's going to have something to do with what we saw in their future state book as well. Um, it would answer some weird Red X questions. It would answer some weird Amanda Waller questions. Mm-hmm. We're starting to see some of these threads merge and do different things in August. So I think maybe that's a plausible answer. Maybe so. That it's an Earth 3 Red X. Yeah. And I mean, I I won't say that those those characters looked a whole lot like the deceased characters, but... They kind of did. I will also note, uh, and maybe it's just a coloring thing, Mm -hmm. but that definitely looks like Psybeast in that middle panel, too. Um, Oh, yeah, I think so. Like the merged Beast Boy cyborg who we saw in Future State. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I did have something as I was reading through this that was absolutely a question for you, and that is, what do you think about how Bolt got her powers? I love it. 
Um, any anything that makes me think we're gonna see Jesse Quick at some point makes me happy. Right. I also wonder though. And I'm either going to have to ask around or go do some research to find this, because I've not had a chance to do that yet. I feel like we learned at one point that Daniel West went and lived in Australia. Oh. And she mentions, so she's got a partial speed force equation. Which, the other part of this made me wonder is... Is is that why she can run in bursts? Is that why she can only run for very short distances, because she doesn't have the whole formula? I think so. But she mentions other people can can try to do the same thing. Think of this formula, read this formula, and it does nothing for them. I wonder if she has some connection to Daniel West. Like, while he was... I think he lived in Australia for a while. Like, I think that is part of his backstory. Uh, Daniel West being Iris West's brother and the father of Wallace West. Yes. Who was, in the New 52, a reverse Flash. Not Wallace, Daniel. Right. Um, so I wonder if there's some connection to the West family. There, who knows? Yeah, I, I'm very interested to find out. And that's, I think, probably what I think this book has going for it the most is all of the things that they keep setting up are all interesting things that I want to know more about. One of the things that that I don't like to talk a whole lot about Harry Potter because J.K. Rowling is. A proven piece of shit. But one of the things that I realized revisiting those books before she just started opening her mouth all the damn time about transphobic nonsense is that really those books are just mystery books. They're just the first four or five, at least, just investigating stuff with a magic background. Yeah. And it feels like this book has kind of aped that formula in, I think, a way that's super successful. The mysteries behind what's going on are what drives this book. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that. Who are these characters? What are they up to? How do we avoid this cataclysm in the future? All those questions are what gives this gas. And the, the sort of interpersonal relationships, the drama. It's not like, it's not a book about punching or fighting in the way a lot of superhero books are. It's just a question about, like, or a book about asking questions and answering them. Or making us imagine answers to them. All right. And then uh, at the end here, we already know who Brat Girl is. But who are these other two characters that are part of the Bat Pack? Uh, I think we were introduced to them earlier on. I forget their really? names because they were not as well branded as Brat Girl. But yeah, I think they were introduced in, at least in issue one. Maybe so. I may have to go back and look. Yeah, I don't have that handy it's in a stack of stuff to be bagged and boarded but i do believe that that they were in that sort of intro issue i love the take that they're the ones who are going to investigate this mystery of who red x is well if you're part of the bat family you've got a detective exactly that's my point yeah Yeah. it's perfect okay over at marvel black widow number seven written by kelly thompson pencils by elena casagrande Inks by Elena Casagrande and Elisabetta de Amico. Colors by Jordi Belair. And letters by Corey Pettit. So, uh, is it just me, or is Natasha rapidly building a found family? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Oh, Um, boy. And can I say how much I love her and Yelena and how they 
play off of each other in this? I mean, they're clearly like two parents, right? They're very much like, let's go ask mom and dad and pit them against each other a little bit and we'll get what we want. It, yes, yes. And then um, as if all, uh, as if that dynamic with this, you know, person that Yelena wants to train and Natasha is like, no, we're not training her. <laughs> you know, the as much as I love that whole dynamic, Alex, who 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 do we add into the fray in this um in this issue? Well, that would be one Anya, Spider Girl, Corazon. Yeah. How happy were you? Very. I did not I did not expect this, but it made so much sense. It, it, you know what it kind of does. And I love the scene where <laughs> Natasha's sitting at this <laughs> yep. little cafe table and Anya's walking by. She's like, "Wait a minute. You're Black Widow." I would expect you to be better at hiding. Oh, you wanted me to find you. Oh, you wanted me to see you. <laughs> now you're catching on. Yeah. Have a seat. <laughs> and just and like the I've... very gentle, I've got something for you to do. If you don't feel like you can, if you're not ready, that's fine. I want you to say that, and I will still call you the next time. Which, like, I love this version of Black Widow that is compassionate and nurturing in a way that feels... Like, she should be. Like, no one goes through as much trauma as she has without becoming either a total monster or empathetic. Well, and I think I think what has made that difference, and it's, the, it's what we see on the first page, is she was a mom for a year. Exactly. Like, yeah. she can't take that part of herself away even though she has lost that family. Exactly. And it's a version of this character who, honestly, I like a whole lot more than I've got so much red in my ledger. Yes, me too. I I, I think it is a much more real feeling character. Yeah. Yeah. And like, we've seen teases of it before. As much as I love to just absolutely rag on Secret Empire for being a lot. Just a lot. That's, that's, I'll leave it at that. A lot. Yeah. The most, like, positively memorable thing about that to me was her trying to take the the champions under her wing and train them so they'd make it through it. That felt a lot more like a big sister mentor, though. Yes. This feels a whole lot more like mom. But I mention it because, like, I do yeah. think we've seen elements of this in her before. Mm -hmm. I think this is something other writers have tried to get us up to. But have not been able to make stick. I mean, uh, the Mark Wade Chris Somney Black Widow run very much ends with the, her on the cusp of being in a position, I think, like she is in this arc. Again, not in that maternal sense, not in that parental sense, but in that way that, like, she could be a, a mentor figure. She could be someone who takes a kind of ownership of these kids and making their lives better. So I'm I'm glad to see that actually, like, clicking and becoming a status quo for her. And I hope that holds. I do, too. I do, too. I'm super excited. I, I, again, uh, nobody who listens to this on any sort of regular basis should have any shock that it's Kelly Thompson. So, of course, I love it. But yeah. This is this is fame. This is this is my favorite Natasha I have ever seen or read. Agreed. Yeah. Totally. No question, hands down. And it's beautiful. Like Elena Casagrande and Elisabetta de Amico and Jordi Belair, like these pages are just magic. Yeah, they yeah, they are. Yes. 
that being said, Yelena is much more who Yelena always is, but I love that foil in this particular dynamic. Well, and I love that I love the way Thompson writes Yelena here. Mm-hmm. Because you can, as the reader, read Yelena at face value and read read Yelena at what Natasha's afraid of her doing. Mm-hmm. And either of those feels plausible. Yelena could just be giving this kid enough training not to get herself killed. Right. To take care of herself, sure. Because it's clear in this issue that, like, she does need some training and some focus. She Mm -hmm. is not in control. Right. So it's, it's not just a matter of her pushing past a reasonable limit. And I like that balance here, too. Yeah. But, but the question is, and this is what Natasha is, is, is that really all you're trying to do? You know. Well, and I think that invites a question. Is is that really all you should be doing? Like, is Natasha totally right in saying, no, we shouldn't bring these kids and train them? Because honestly, like, if you've got Natasha where she's at now, mm-hmm. and you've got these kids coming in not fully trained who are going to do what they're going to do anyway, couldn't Natasha do some good and Yelena do some good by organizing them and giving them oversight and teaching and training and mentoring? Like, and, is and Natasha I, wholly right in saying no? Like, no, you don't want to turn them in the wep- into weapons the way you were. But there's a middle ground. And I like that that middle ground exists between the two versions of what Natasha sees as black and white and like, feels like an answer that Natasha will eventually come to. Well, and it's it's also where I think going kind of going back to what we were talking about before of the fact of, you know, having two parents, you get a more balanced, uh, you know, method in in how you approach things. Yeah. I mean, there there is value in having multiple opinions about things expressed. Right. Yeah. Real talk, Brian. Mm-hmm. Could you not imagine, very much in the same way that West Coast Avengers came out of Hawkeye, could you not imagine an Avengers Academy book spinning out of this eventually, or building on top of this eventually? Yeah, and I'll and you know what? You know the only thing that's missing from this family right now? A pet? Uh, well, I mean, okay. <laughs> no, it's it's the same thing Rose brought up to Damien earlier. You need you need the dad to make the bad jokes and the or somebody. And I say dad, I mean that role, right? Yeah. I don't care who you it need is. someone to tell dad jokes. Y- yeah, you you need you need. They don't have the humor in this family yet. Yeah, I think they need it. Yeah, they 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 would but, benefit I mean, you need from some, someone, you need cracking someone like jokes. a Clint, right? A Clint or a Spider Man or even sure. like a Jessica Drew. Yeah, that would work. Um, like someone, I said, I, it, yeah, someone it, it, quippy. Yes. Quick, call Spider-Ham. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, the, but that being said, and don't get me wrong, there's very definitely other people they, they could pull in to, to do this, but I'm just saying like that, you add that, and then I think, I, I think you got a well-balanced parental group. Yeah. Here. I like it. Good All right. Let's go. Let's do a Heroes Reborn roundup. We have Heroes Reborn number four. With the accurately titled The Most Hated Man in the Heavens, written by Jason Aaron, art and colors by James Takoe, and letters by Corey Pettit. Uh, this is our 
main feature here. I love the writing. I love the art. I fucking hate Dr. Spectrum. Throw him into the sun. Don't you, though? And you're absolutely supposed to. Jingoistic um, motherfucker. I, I mean, just the worst, right? Um, answer me, James Stokoe, was he? is he the one that did... Um, uh, God, what did I just read not long ago? I, uh, it, it literally just completely va- vanished out of my head. So he did, this was, I think, late last year, he did the Batman annual about Clown Mm -hmm. Hunter. No, it wasn't that. I think he had another story recently in in one of the Batman Black and White books. He's currently writing and drawing Orphan and the Five Beasts. Okay, yeah, yeah, I see that. But the, the... Yeah, and I don't want to go through all of this. Uh, mostly what I want to do in all of these, because, again, we're going to kind of do a, a roundup after all this is over. Yeah. Um, is, you know, I want to touch on who DC parallels are in these, because this is fun for me. Yes. Um, But uh, that being said, I will say I'm not I'm certainly not going to reveal who or what it is, but we find out why things are the way they are now. Yes. and. If you've been reading Avengers, I don't think this is going to feel out of left field for you. Um, if you are just hopping in for this event, like, I promise you it's not a a joke at the expense of everybody who was making theories about uh, a certain MCU TV show recently. Okay. But it is something that we've been building toward. Um... Do you want to talk about the Lobo analog, Brian? You, you mean Rocket Raccoon with his Groot gun? Yes. Um, Rocket as Lobo is perfect. Yeah, of course it is. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, I also would like to acknowledge what would be the canon of this universe at this point. We we learn that basically uh, Dr. Spectrum's whole gig is anything in space, which in his mind, is the American frontier, and only American. We learn that no other countries are allowed to go to space. Ah, good thing Wakanda doesn't exist, right? Wink. (laughs) Um, We learn that he has killed off a bunch of different cosmic groups, including the Star Jammers, which means, Brian, Rocket has dealt with Dr. Cosmic, killing off his shipmates, he and Groot escaped that prior to this, and now he's come to settle the score, which we never get explicitly, but that is what has happened. I mean, clearly. Which means Groot has an even bigger score to settle come the end of this. <laughs> yeah, and then him, Dr. Spectrum, literally wrapping Ego in, a, in, in chains and dipping him into a black hole to torture him. Yeah, like, Oh, yeah. This is this is just oof. yeah. It, it it's it's bad. I like yeah. it's a great story. It's a beautiful issue, but oh, this motherfucker. Uh, yeah. So, uh, what two characters do we get that are clearly going to be headed to Earth to uh to join up with the uh, the 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 real adventures? Uh, well, that would be Groot and the Starbrand. Yeah, the Starbrand. Uh. I forget. Have you been reading Aaron's Avengers run? Uh, I am catching up. 
So I'm okay. behind, but I'm catching up. So in that run, there was a baby that yes. has the powers of the star brand. And yes. presumably this is the same baby, but now grown up some in this continuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she will avenge Rocket. Uh, Groot is a little less on board. And we get we get this. I should name the backup creative team at this point. This is called Born in the Stars. Uh, it is, again, written by Jason Aaron. But the pencils are by Ed McGinnis, inks by Mark Morales, colors by Matthew Wilson, and letters by Corey Pettit. Uh, we we learn very clearly nobody thinks Wakanda exists, but Wakanda exists. Oh yeah, and their ship finds the Star Brand, and they rendezvous together here. So we get Groot and uh, was it Okoye who was uh, running the ship, commanding the ship? I think so. Uh, we get Groot and Okoye and the Star Brand all thrown into the equation here, and. Was it my imagination, or did the Wakandan ship look very Shire-like? Uh, it did have some Shire vibes, but it also felt just like, I think, generally Star Wars-y. Um, Maybe. I, I, my, my point being, I'm wondering if they've kind of taken over, Wakanda has kind of taken the the place of what would be the Shire Empire in this. Well, that's, that's plausible. It may be like a nod in part to... Uh, the the Black Panther run that also wrapped up right. this past yeah, sure, week sure. that that was about a a Wakandan space uh, uh, empire, and like I think it's also reminiscent of those designs, if not possibly explicitly one of them. Okay, uh, but they could easily, if like that beat has happened in this continuity, like yeah, they could be either an analog for the Shi'ar or someone else who is a a force in space of equal weight. Yeah. All right, let's keep going. Yes, uh, we're going to be quicker on these one-shots. Mm-hmm. Magneto and the Mutant Force, written by Steve Orlando, art by Bernard Chang, colors by David Curiel, and letters by Clayton Cowles. So the, the, the couple of quick things I want to point out in here is we find out that there was another member of the Squadron Supreme who yes. was Super Scroll, right? And who who was he the analog of on the Justice League? Martian Manhunter. Yeah. And uh who killed him? Rogue. Yeah, instead of taking Captain Marvel's powers, she took Super Scroll's powers, which is which means crazy. She also now uh is has stuck in her mind his memories of killing Mystique who raised her. Yes. Uh, as she put it, he got the last laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is really good because the whole idea is that uh, when they killed Charles, um, a portion of Charles's mind went into Magneto, and the idea is they are trying to get him, rescue him, essentially. And I've now I've got to say, Brent, I don't think I think this was just a my brain was in the right place to see this. Mm-hmm. I don't think this was telegraphed. I think this was meant to be a reveal. But the uh, twist we get at the end. I actually spent a lot of this issue being like, oh, is this where they're going? I hope this is where they're going because this will be cool. And I honestly, I've been waiting. I'm not going to say who this character is. I have been yeah. waiting for this character to show up in the Hickman X-Men run and cause problems. Mm-hmm basically the whole time now and i have shocked that th- i have been shocked that this character has not i think yet. they're saving this character for us i think they've yeah. gotta be yeah yeah um but that being said um i did not see it right away but i did catch it right before the the reveal 
Mm-hmm. And it's like it was one of those things, like, as soon as I realized, I was like, oh, yeah, duh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Super good. Super good. We and have the. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and then we have what next is what? Siege Society? Yes. Siege Society, written by Cody Ziegler, art by Paco Medina, colors by Pete Pentazis, and letters by Joe Sabino. So we learned that there was there was a, a schism between, uh, who was it, Nighthawk? Nighthawk and Hyperion. And I, Hyperion. I think they even use the phrase civil war. I think I think maybe they do. Yeah. And uh Nighthawk takes part of the team and goes and relocates to Europe. To yes, London his, specifically. His secret squad. Um or as, you know, I call them uh Justice League Europe. Yeah, like I like that this one kind of actually does play both at the Justice League Europe and Secret Avengers levels. Like, exactly. I like that that's layered that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I have maybe some mixed feelings about how they handle the Nazi characters in this issue. Yeah, a little bit. They're a little too competent for my taste in this timeline. <laughs> um, yeah, we we do have a couple of entries. Like, instead of U.S. agent, we get uh, the Soviet agent, right? Yes. Uh, uh, what was... What was... John Walkovich. Yes. Yep. And uh, uh, Natasha is part of Zemo's crew. Well, yeah. I did. I, I very much liked that she really wasn't part of his crew. He literally hired her. Yeah, she's hired muscle, yeah. and basically her sidekicks are Hawkeye and Fire Ant. Yes. Fire Ant, of course, is Scott Lang. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like that very much. And who is like like this is when this is when you when it sealed the deal and you you knew that it was Justice League Europe. Who is on uh, monitor duty for? Well, that would um, be Tom Thumb. Who I'm pretty sure is is that Oberon? Is that it, it the... is it is the most Oberon character okay. that you could possibly have found? Yes. Yeah, I just I was not a hundred percent that Oberon was his name. Yeah. Um. That's Oberon. We met the the Hawkman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blue Eagle. Yep. Blue Eagle. Which, I'll be honest, especially I think at one point since they call him Birdman. Uh, no, that was that was Young Squadron. Um, I did get a little bit of, like, uh, Birdman vibes from him, though, which always makes me happy. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, and then who was... Uh... Who, who, were, who were they pitting against Hawkeye? Uh, was that Aquaman? No, 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 Golden Archer. Oh, Golden Archer, right, right. Uh, we also got the Aquaman analog. Though. Yeah. Uh, yes, Golden Archer, of course, best known in DC Comics as Ronald McDonald. <laughs> God, just it, it, it's it, it, just brilliant. All right, we should move on because I could I could talk about this all day. Yeah, I love it. Um, and then the last one is Young Squadron, written by Jim Zub, art by Stephen Cummings, colors by Eric Arseniega, and letters by Clayton Cowles. A.K.A. Young Justice. Young Justice. Uh, not endorsed by the Squadron Supreme. Not endorsed by, well, two-thirds of them are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe not as a group, but yeah, two, two of the three. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you. I will say, I feel like Night Nighthawks Nighthawk, Night Thrasher? Nighthawk, isn't it? Nighthawk. Yeah. I feel like Nighthawk's response to a random kid showing up in your dead partner's costume saying, Hi, I'm here to replace your dead protege. 
is actually a more normal response than Batman's. I'm gonna just lay that one out there. Is he a dick? Yes. Oh, yeah. Is it understandable? Also, yes. Yeah, so literally we find out that that uh, uh, Nighthawk and Falcon were partners, mm-hmm. and Nighthawk got killed by the Goblin. Yes. On a bridge, no less. Right? Yeah. Like, oh boy. Um, but, uh, literally so probably it's... probably still with a crowbar i'm gonna bet though i bet there was a crowbar <laughs> could involved. be um but miles shows up as the new falcon right and literally when it's over his response is you don't know the first thing about... if i see you in that costume again i'll tear it apart and dump you in juvenile detention like he is not happy that he has shown up like this yeah yeah the thing i love the most about this issue is this central premise that even if the Avengers never existed, the current champions roster would still have found their way to being who they are. And specifically realizing that, um, yeah, the Squadron Supreme are kind of dicks and assholes and not who we should be modeling ourselves after. Yeah. Yeah. We, we shouldn't be that. We should be champions. Hey, that's a great name. <laughs> yes. Yep. Good, good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, and I guess we should also acknowledge here, uh, Kamala Khan becomes... Girl power, Girl who is power. not not who you would guess an analog to. She's more of a Donna Troy, mm-hmm. Wonder Woman style sidekick. Yep. And uh, Sam Alexander becomes... Kid Spectrum. Kid Spectrum, noticeably not a dick yes. like Dr. Spectrum. Correct. Um, I've got to imagine that like the one panel we see of them together in space is really all the time they spent together. Let's hope. Speaking of young superheroes, Reptile number one. Written by Terry Blas, pencils by Anita Bellam, inks by Victor Olasaba, colors by Carlos Lopez, and letters by Joe Sabina. So this is the first part of a four-issue miniseries about uh, Reptile, a young superhero who I guess was introduced during Civil War during the 50 States Initiative. Um, a good deal of this issue does go to explaining his backstory just so they can get into sort of his anxieties and like how that is affecting him as a superhero. And it's, it's worth that little bit of setup because I really do dig this. I enjoy the, the sense of humor this book has, uh, at its outset, basically he and his grandfather, whom he has been taking care of after his parents mysteriously disappeared have moved in with his aunt because his grandfather's health isn't great and she's a nurse and wants to keep him closer to home. Uh, And his two cousins, who I believe are twins. Um, And he is frustrated at, like, everyone kind of moving on from his parents' disappearance, talking about them as though they're dead. His aunt has framed pictures to, to put on the mantle during Dia de los Muertos and, like, that sets him off, he gets angry, shouts at them, storms out, and his cousins, like, catch him and take him to this street festival, uh, to, like, grab, grab, to grab good tacos and get some fabric for costume making and things like that. It's like, it reminds me a little bit of something like Miss Marvel, okay. the, the Kamala Khan run, because it is sort of grounding it in family relationships more than anything else. Um, and then of course he does get an excuse to turn into a dinosaur, or partially dinosaur, because he can't go fully dinosaur after, uh, Hank Pym experimented on him, because then he gets angry and loses control. 
damn it, Hank. Um, and someone shows up, like, wanting to steal the source of his power and claiming to know where his parents are. And maybe one of his cousins has some powers, too? Like, we get some good mystery hooks here at the end. Uh, the art is, like, bright and colorful and fun. I really dig it. It's a great style for this. Uh, super interested to see where this goes. I, I really dug it. Cool. Yeah. X-Men time. Yes. New Mutants, number 18. Written by Vita Ayala. Art and colors by Rod Rice. Letters by Travis Lanham. And design by Tom Muller. Hey, uh, Ronnie? You've made some bad choices off page. Yeah, um, you know what's so, you know what's so hard about that one in particular to me? Is you absolutely understand how she got there and don't really blame her? Yeah, and there's one small part of her that I that I kind of agree with. Yeah. And, and that's the fact of if if you if this is how you feel, you owe it to be honest about that and have a conversation with that person about it. Yeah, it's it's interesting cuz like we and we've talked about this, we as the readers don't trust Shadow King. Correct. And never with good reason (laughs) but there's also just enough ambiguity even after this issue yeah to make you wonder is he is it possible not well not to make you think he's on the level but to wonder is it possible and and honestly it's really not him and what he's doing right now it's it's this setting that they've built in krakoa yeah that we have seen so many people specifically you know criminal mutants take advantage of krakoa and its amnesty to change yeah and so it leaves that question of could he right well i think it's so intentional he very much lives on the fringes he lives Mm -hmm. in the woods in caves in these very liminal state liminal spaces much like the the astral plane right yeah that like it feels like a natural place for him, but it's inherently ominous. It inherently feels other. Well, and I I think there's and I think part of them there's some brilliant brilliant writing in this and some brilliant setup in this and leading you to that question to to, to being able to to question is has he changed? And yeah. part of that was you know that origin again of him that we got recently about where he came from and that like mm-hmm. he didn't start off as a bad person. Right. Yeah. So I mean, like, I just don't know. We 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 we're kind of tackling this book sort of backwards in a way, but Yeah, we are. Uh I think there's maybe a little more to dig into in the B plots and the A plots a little more explicit. Mhm. Uh so I'm cool with spending our time here. Uh we get to this confrontation that is sort of Ronnie leading Gabby to him. And by the way, Gabby is still the best. Gabby is amazing. I love Gabby so much in this book. That scene mm-hmm. with Gabby and Jimmy is just Ugh. like him giving her space to do what she knows is right and to mess up if she does, but also reminding her, if you need more, if something goes wrong, call us. We will be here. Yeah, we got your back like, if you need us. But we trust it you. Is, yeah. It is this great nurturing moment. Yeah. And she takes that to go to her friends who are playing with this this sort of power circuit under the the uh, guidance and encouragement of the Shadow King to, like, let them jump into other bodies and have other experiences, you know, 
And yes, on the surface, what they're doing is super sketchy. They're like, finding corpses. And they're like, well, they gave them to science. This is science. And Kevin's like, but is this what they meant? And she confronts them in this way that I think is super reasonable and super identifiable. And certainly as the reader, knowing the whole history of the Shadow King, like, is a voice for some very realistic concerns. Sure. I think she's absolutely coming from a a good place, from the right place. Absolutely 100% where I would come from in this situation. But they push back in a way that also feels really valid. We have a different experience. And no matter how similar we are in a lot of ways, you and we don't have the same trauma from our power sets. Correct. And there's something valid in that that does, I mean, does create the potential for is is the Shadow King doing good? Is he encouraging them in an earnest way? Is this something they need anyway? Right. Um, and then there's, there's the, the, the question, and this is really where I think that conversation between Gabby and Jimmy goes is kind of that old, if you're not willing to tell people what you're doing at some level, you know, it's not right. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, Gabby is like the best in this. She's like, I am your friend. And so I'm telling you, I'm worried and concerned about this. And they're like, you can't tell us what to do. And she's like, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you I'm your friend and I'm worried about it. Yeah, there's never accusation exactly. or anything like that in, in her in her approach. It's Correct. completely it's completely out of earnest, genuine concern. Mm-hmm. So good. Like it like this feels so incredibly real in that so many times in comics, so, so many times. It's the Oh, well, this is clearly how, this is clearly the right answer. This is clearly what they should be doing. They shouldn't be trusting the Shadow King, right? Or, yeah, they're doing this thing and it's clearly wrong because this, this is so much more real in that there are valid sides and concerns from every point of view and none of it's black and white. Well, I also love the timing of this issue coming out. In the same week as X-Men number 20, which is one of our clearest indications that our heroes, traditionally, or at least traditionally in terms of Professor X, and maybe more recently in terms of Magneto, Mm -hmm. but the leadership of Krakoa, those working in the light, working for the best for mutants, all all in quotes, uh, are working on a scale that's every bit as reprehensible as anything the Shadow King would do. Yeah, and I think I think this goes back to I think it's easy for us to forget because we so often have seen, uh, you know, mutants as the heroes, or you know, are the downtrodden or the persecuted, or and they have been for so long. But like, they are now a nation, and nations do awful things, right? And like. Professor Xavier is a great example of a character who, recognizing that that some of these things were just things that were norms for their times and that we look at through a different lens now, but sometimes also intentionally, and I think that's important to this point, has made calls without the consent of the team, Have has made calls that were rash or extreme that really caused problems. I mean, you can point back to the earliest days of him and Jean, and that being toxic and problematic. Yeah, of him, yeah, locking up part of her power and whatever, yeah. You can point to the the Kate Pride entrance on Professor Xavier is a jerk, 
accurate. Mm. But you can also go to something like the Grant Morrison new X-Men that starts with him outing all the mutants as mutants on TV without telling anyone he's going to do it for. Right. Like, he very much lives in this ends justify the means place. Which, one of the things I think is so ridiculously ironic about that is that was literally the contention that he had with Eric. Well, and it's interesting. I, I read... I'll see, I'll see if I can find it again to retweet it from, from Panelology's account. But I saw this really great Twitter thread on X-Men and the pre-Claremont material sort of positioning Xavier and the X-Men as a model minority and the ways that the Claremont run really sought to break that down and make make the X-Men something more real and something more complicated and sort of shake off the weight of the model minority myth and the racism inherent to that or bigotry inherent to that let's say because in the case of X-Men it's not it's the same mindset as racism but it's, yeah it's it's all it always feels a little disingenuous to 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 me to like take a metaphor for a specific kind of bigotry Agreed. and talk about it as that kind of bigotry and i don't mean Correct. to do that here but this idea that like the earliest x-men stories were this sort of model minority myth and the way that xavier evolves through that and after that and the way that the differences between Xavier and Magneto sort of become lesser and disappear as the morality gets more complicated, as as X-Men is no longer presented as, well, if you live as a model minority, you should be fine, but let us other those who don't conform to some societal standard. Like, the further it gets away from that, the more complex everything gets. And the more you see, I think, this side of Xavier. So mm -hmm. that now where we are at a point where we have an X-Men nation, Xavier and Magneto are absolutely going to be on the same page. Mm -hmm. Like it's a supernatural evolution of that. Well, and the other thing to remember, and this goes back to, to really the Dawn of X, is the, like the, the miniseries even, is they have knowledge and a certainty right of how this ends if they don't take steps like this right uh also just because we segued in a very smooth way by our standards uh let me just say this is written by jonathan hickman mm. art is by francesco mobley colors are by sunny go letters are by clayton cowles and design is by tom muller yeah um but yeah and i th i think it's very natural as um as a minority group, I, I, I'm I, this is the wrong wording. I was going to say gains recognition, but that's not. Um, is disenfranchised slightly less? Maybe is the right word. I, I don't know. I, I don't like how that sounds either. But you get a diversity amongst them and amongst opinions about this. In other words, when you're a group that is targeted, right? It's a whole lot easier to come together and be more unified in your in, in your responses to things let me let me frame it a slightly different way for okay you. sure um one contemporary example in american politics is predicting voting behaviors across the latinx community because more and more what 
people who pay attention to data are finding, which makes sense if you stop and think about just the different lived experiences of people either from different countries or descended from immigrants from different countries across Latin America, across Central America and South America, is that the quote-unquote Latinx community in Miami versus the quote-unquote Latinx community in Dallas have a widely different makeup of what countries have folks immigrated from or are they descended from immigrants from, and how have those different experiences affected how they'll respond to the same message. You can't talk about Latinx voters in the U.S. at a national level and assume that any one community will behave exactly the same way as another because that's not the reality. There's nuance. There are different experiences of, for example, messages that are more embracing of a socialist political view, i.e. universal health care universal basic income those ideas don't play as well in florida because there are more people in florida who lived through that gone wrong under castro yeah through a version of that that did not work and became something authoritarian and there is a valid fear in that community that doesn't exist in a community that has a lower population of of people of cuban heritage sure and and just like that as you then you drill into a specific community like say miami you 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 find different groups within that own community that have different opinions about specific topics and that's right. my point is the the more you go into and learn about a specific quote group the more you learn that it is made up of then also groups who you could then dig in so yeah. the point is it, it it is always more complicated than simplifying it to a single thing fractals man everything's a fractal you got it you got it. until you get to an individual sure <laughs> well and then even then look at the conflicts within yourself <laughs> right wow that was uh, a tangent i liked it though yeah okay that's cool um but uh the all of this to be said but and, and i think where we were coming from in all of this is holy shit they make some drastic decisions and they were gonna make do some pretty horrible damn things yeah, I mean, so we we go into this issue knowing we only have one more issue of Hickman's X-Men before Duggan takes over and Hickman moves to something else. We actually learn in this what that something else is. The this issue cuz 21 will be sort of a a a uh Hellfire Gala piece. Right, It'll be right. part of a larger arc. This very much feels like the most explicit reminder of House of X and Powers of Ten mm-hmm. that we've had in a long time. Definitely. I mean, we see Mora for the first time since then, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, maybe since X-Men number one. Yeah. Yeah, right. And this very much feels like the end of a movie in a trilogy, right? In a way, yep. like, this is this is where shit goes wrong and your status quo as a audience member is different now like you have learned that vader is luke's father yeah yeah this this Um, is the setup for the darkest hour yeah and it is it is bringing back the idea that mystique has made this deal that if she does a mission for for charles and eric that they will revive uh destiny oh shoot destiny yes although they have no intention of reviving no they have no intention which (laughs) 
You can ask the question, well, how, how much do they know she'll fail? She has Forge make a bomb to take out an Orcus station. I, I, I did like that conversation, by the way. Yeah. How do you sleep at night? Very well. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the most, and we, the, the, the most powerful weapon that could destroy the most you could, you can create. Oh, well now see, now you're not being realistic. Cause I could create a matter antimatter bomb that would like, you know, you couldn't activate it unless you were off world because it would, Oh, yeah. Oh, this is for Orcus. You need that. Okay, cool. I'm on it. It's like, oh, okay. But I can only make it so powerful because it might accidentally destroy the sun. Yes. <laughs> um, They know that this is the day that Nimrod will be brought online. Uh, yep. And they send Mystique to destroy the space station as it happens. Um, now, I, you know what I thought was probably the most interesting part of this, though? What's that? And that is... The whole purpose that the and I can't remember her name, but the doctor created Nimrod for was it Aaliyah? Uh, I think it is Aaliyah. Is to essentially be able to bring back her husband. Yeah, like it's it's this amazing reveal because all she is trying to do is yeah. what Krakoa does exactly. Is it, it like it literally puts humanity on par then with the mutants in that they have a way to back people up and bring them back. Now, granted, it's in an artificial body, right? But yeah, and like what we find out is, you know, Nimrod has the power to replicate himself. But we find out when he does that, there's a period of time where essentially the data in the two of them have to sync up. Or I think it says yeah. grow, right? So she has, here is how it works. Yeah. She has stored Erasmus's memories, and mm -hmm. her name is Aaliyah. Yes. She has stored Erasmus's memories in this crystal, and she implants the crystal in the Nimrod shell yep. to revive him. But that crystal has to propagate through his makeup all of the memories and personalities stored in him. So when he splits off these consciousnesses, that's immediate that propagation hasn't had time yet. So across the hive mind, because they're all connected to him through this crystal, mm -hmm. he is this full person. But when two of the three bodies are destroyed and only one remains, the one that remains has not finished that propagation. It has not, it does not contain everything because that propagation had not finished through the hole yet. Right. And, and what uh, is lost is her husband's personality. Yeah, it is him. All that is left is the machine, the Nimrod we know. So and had they not done this, Nimrod would have been honestly kind of a chill dude who was a good guy. Right. And very possibly not become what is the threat to them. Yeah. They have made their own demise. Mm. They have become, in a very like Greek myth sense, yes. a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. And I guess Mystique is Orpheus. Oh. Not Orpheus, Oedipus. Oedipus. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh, it's it's horrible. It's bad. I love reading it though. Yeah. It's it's there's I mean, it's the the opaque sunglasses anime esque villain who who pulls the strings in Orcus, but has this great line about we've learned one thing, and that's that they fear us. And how often has the the mutant's understanding of humanity attacking them been they attack us because they fear us. Right. And we've seen that inverted now. 
Well, and and it really is just another example of what I talked about in New Mutants is, and probably what I think is making all of these books work so well is everything's gray. Yeah, I mean, we get it in Way of X. I mean, this whole arc, we're in mm-hmm. the reign of X now. There is nothing about the word reign that does not feel like an overstep and abuse of power, right? Yeah. Reign is a loaded word. Aristocracy, control, authoritarianism, all of those words tie to the idea of a reign, and that's not that's not healthy. It it's it carries some negative connotations, absolutely. Yeah. We also get a uh big splash at the end of this with one word on it, Brian. A word that when I saw I thought of you. <laughs> And I imagined your excitement. Uh, before we say the word, how would you characterize that excitement? Um, overjoyed horror, maybe. <laughs> that sounds right. And what's that word? Um, you know what? I'm gonna. Uh, I wanna because uh, I'm trying to think. I think I saw something else about it at the end. So hang on, just a second. Was there a? Oh no, I know what it was. It was. It was. Yeah, it was telling us that it's coming this fall um and that yes. it's called the books of destiny is like a little you know how it's got the little weird tags along the bottom but the um the word is inferno which uh will be the new jonathan hickman book uh, i mean of course it will if there was any question marvel's confirmed that since oh boy I, like they just Oh hey, you know how you know how we had this at ten, and then we turned it up to eleven. We can go to twelve. Watch this, click. Yeah, <laughs> damn you! <laughs> but keep doing it because it's good. All right, one All right. more book: The Blue Flame, number one, written by Christopher Cantwell, art by Adam Gorham, colors by Kurt Michael Russell, and letters by Hassan Atzmanelhau. This is a new vault series. This wait, just to be clear, this is not a book about lighting methane expulsions from your body on fire, right? <laughs> Actually, <laughs> um, I'm gonna gonna give you the back cover description of this. Do not tell me that. The Blue Flame is a cosmic hero. The Blue Flame is a DIY vigilante that fights crime on the streets of Milwaukee. The Blue Flame is a blue-collar HVAC repairman named Sam Brossman. Uh, and do you want to guess what we see him repairing in this issue, Brian? I am very, very scared to know at this point. It is, in fact, a furnace. Oh, boy. Okay. Burners, diffusers, crack. Um, yeah, he's he's an HVAC repairman, and yes, he does, like, have a jetpack with blue flames that come out of it. Okay. Mm, maybe they don't come out of it, but he's... His his symbol is like a blue butane flame. Okay. Wow. Um. So actually, you made a joke, but hit the truth. <laughs> Somehow, I love that even more. As all good humor does. There you go. Uh, this issue. I will be upfront. Uh, I dug this. Not wholly sure where this is going. Uh, this is one of those, like, get you hooked and interested, number one, where I think we'll see a little more world building in two and three that will give us a little more context. The The issue is framed by a pair of scenes. Uh, one is the blue flame out in space with this very, like, Silver Age, big caption boxes, 
some really like beautiful like single figure out in space art and he lands on this planet and is uh brought in lets himself be brought in by these very insectoid looking uh humanoids and he is brought before a tribunal for a trial and the sort of backside bookend of that is he is told that uh, the trial is for the fate of humanity, for the fate of planet Earth, and that he has been chosen uh, as Earth's barrister, as Earth's legal defender. <laughs> what that book ends is set in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, we see him wake up, go to work, finish the day, uh, pull his costume out of his trunk of his beat-up comet, drive in costume, to uh, rendezvous with the rest of his team, who are kind of broke, working out of one of their apartments. They get all their funding from, like, one of their parents, uh, and are on their way to, like, a book-signing photo-op publicity event, because they need the money. Uh, and then all get slaughtered. Except him, presumably. Um, I really dig this. I think you can kind of see from the shape of it why I say, like, there are definitely some dots to be connected. Like, I don't know relative to when he's in space is that I assume that's happening after what we see in the middle, but it could be before. We don't really know. Um, but this is very much about, like, I guess what you represent and how you represent as a hero. It's not just about being a superhero book. It's very care or being a superhero, but it's very character driven. And I think uses those pulpy silver age superhero trappings as a way to tell this other story so uh definitely dug it recommend it uh check it out if you get a chance is it still good alice in leatherland number two alice accidentally finds herself at pride and buys a t-shirt about being a mama bear and then gets pulled into the pride parade uh before getting herself a new job. That whole pride scene is adorable, and I love it very much. Excellent. Destiny New York, number three. Uh, we learn kind of what's up. Everyone gets on the page, the same page about who might be destroying the world. Uh, and yeah, like, I, I've read, because this, this released digitally first, so I know where this is going, and I'm afraid of saying too much, but... Still digging it. Absolutely love it. Definitely check it out if you can. Abbott, 1973, number five. This wraps up our second arc of Abbott. Uh, Abbott does manage to save the day for now, but things... Her choices have a cost. Her saving the day has a cost. And uh, Saladin Ahmed described this as kind of his Empire Strikes Back, specifically in terms of where this ends without having announced a sequel yet, but I, I would be shocked if we don't get a sequel to this at some point. Everybody go read it so we can get a sequel to this at some point. Something is Killing the Children, number 16. Uh, this is the return for this series after kind of wrapping up its first major arc. Uh, we actually jump back in time to see when Erica joined the Order. Spectre Inspectors, number four, Brian. Um... Uh, two of our main characters play boats with a small young boy uh, and help him. Uh, and then he, in turn, helps them. And we find out if you make a deal with a demon, you should probably make sure you know 
everything that's involved with it. Batman Superman number 18. Various villains and heroes are unmasked or unmask themselves. And then we learn that Dr. Adam and Martha Wayne might have been the only thing keeping these worlds from getting destroyed. Batman Black and White number six. Uh, This is our last Batman Black and White from this set. A couple of highlights here. The Second Signal, written by Brandon Thomas, art by Carrie Randolph, letters by Darren Bennett. Uh, This is about Mad Hatter setting up shop in in a portion of Gotham that is a, a... poor black community and kind of knowing that he wouldn't get caught for longer there than if he had set up anywhere else we have the abyss written by pierre colonnay and elsa charidier with art by elsa charidier and letters by ariana mar anything drawn by elsa charidier is immediately worth the price of admission uh this is a fun sort of like rashomon style story about the same Night dealing with Batman foiling Man Bat attacking a bank from three different perspectives who like see him as a menace or as a hero or as a monster, like a literal monster. It's super cool. Um, and then the last one in this issue is written by Scott Snyder, art by John Romita Jr. and Klaus Johnson, and letters by Tom Napolitano. You know, I know not enough people have said this, but I think Scott Snyder has a strong take on Batman, and I think someday he's really going to get do a, a really uh, formative Batman run. I mean, it's it sounds like he's got a story to tell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is actually about a uh, former crime scene photographer who is on the verge of retiring, trying to decide what the real what the most real photo he's ever taken of batman is and wanting batman's answer to that question um everything in this one was solid though uh opening moves nick darrington and steve wands like monsters of the deep john arcudi james heron and tom napolitano and then pinups by jesus marino and babs tar rounded out detective comics number 1036 we have the neighborhood part three uh which sees Batman and Huntress work together, and I love Huntress's take on this, which is, yeah, I needed to see how you might be involved in these women disappearing, not because I thought it was you, but because, look, there are lots of clones and doppelgangers and robots, and I just, I needed to be sure. (laughs) Uh, We also have the backup, the ex-boyfriend, which is continuing uh, the Huntress involving Mary Knox, or continuing the Huntress investigating mary knox's murder harley quinn number three uh harley tries to get her support group for former joker hench people up and running and dr strange dr hugo strange that's why that one sounded weird dr strange different guy dr hugo strange uh sees this as a perfect opportunity to strike the other history of the dc universe number four uh we get renee montoya's story uh, we might actually revisit this one once Brian's had a chance to read it. But this one very much feels along the same lines, but stands out as as unique in that because Renee Montoya is the most contemporary character this series has, has visited, there's already a lot more sort of intentionality through what she does. So this this 
leverages that I think in a way that is unique because it doesn't have to build that uh, as much as it has for other characters. Really dug this issue. Uh, Strange Adventures number 10. Uh, we get the big reveal on what's actually been going on all along. And uh, you can read along and find out if Brian and I were right about what's going on. Bitterroot number 13. We see the fallout of uh, a main character, a major character in the story being taken off the board. Uh, this actually, this issue actually like jumps around over the course of months for different characters. Uh, following following that character's demise and gives us, I think, our best look yet at at kind of what this series will be going forward. How how the Sangare family and all of the uh, allies around them can can sort of fight back the demons they're they're hunting. Um, and like really builds this super cool intersectional version of what that looks like. I love the storytelling here. Uh, cannot recommend Bitterroot enough. And we got some information recently about the creative team for this movie going forward. So like that is also uh, happening in the future. So it's a good time to get on board. The Department of Truth, number nine. Uh, we learned how magic works and... A lot about Harry Potter's dick, which was not a phrase I thought we would hear much after that time Daniel Radcliffe was an Equus. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> number five. Uh, what happens when you are told, hey, go steal some creepy clown memorabilia from the creepy old clown in the Haunted Mansion? Oh, that sounds like a brilliant idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe we get to learn a creepy old clown's recipe for, uh... Kid pie? <laughs> well, I was just going to say a, uh, casserole. Oh, okay. Or may maybe it's a kidney pie. These are probably the worst pies in London. <laughs> Shadecraft number three, Brian. Oh my gosh. Um, so first of all, shadow bunnies are ridiculously cute. And second of all, uh, if you're... Uh, somebody who can create uh, shadow demons, then um, maybe you should learn that your subconscious can be a shady place. <laughs> Beta Ray Bill, number three. Uh, what happens when your spaceship develops a body and becomes sentient? Black Panther, number 25. We see both the... Uh, resolution of Wakanda's war with the intergalactic empire of Wakanda, as well as the the end of Ta-Nehisi Coates' run in general on this book. Uh, and kind of leave T'Challa with the question of whether you've asked to be an emperor or not, how do you do good? With that, Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 26, continues Miles' clone saga. Uh, as an aside here, the kind of thing that Salatine Ahmed does that I love is uh, introducing this trio of cl clones, the leader of whom, uh, his name is the Arabic word for undamaged, Selim. Selim is miles backwards. It's perfect, and I love it. Uh, also, Peter has a fun nickname for this, this Spider-Man that will make internet meme aficionados very happy shadow service number eight 
uh gina goes through hell and still accidentally reveals everything to the villain which blood number three uh the eyes have it there's a witch who likes to steal teenagers eyes as yana continues trying to hunt the vampires who honestly are just better at hunting the witches than she is hunting vampires lots of eye stuff in this book just a quick content warning there but it's so good. I love it so much. So not for Jen. There you go. This week's books. No, it's very much Jen's shit. She can deal with the eyes. <laughs> yeah, I love it. This week's books. First up, Everfrost number one. This is written by Ryan K. Lindsay, art by Sammy Cavella, colors by Lauren Affa, and letters by Jim Campbell. This is sort of a, uh, I don't know that post-apocalyptic is right, but sort of a sci-fi future adventure book about a woman who's trying to get off planet uh and away from the sort of oppressive regime that runs the place and also like hacks giant mechs and things like that uh ryan Lindsay wrote a graphic novella called eternal a couple of years back that was absolutely fantastic about like sort of a revenge fantasy viking story dug it super excited for this brian yeah we alluded earlier to a team member leaving Teen Titans Academy to star in this eight-issue miniseries, Crush and Lobo, number one. Yeah, Crush crush quit, and I, I'm very torn because I love seeing her there, but um, I'm super excited that we're going to see this. Yes, this is written by Mariko Tamaki, art is by Amanke Nawalpan, colors are by Tamara Bonvillain, and letters are by Ariana Marr. Uh, yeah, I... I I'm here for this. This is going to be a lot of fun. I I just don't get the impression this is going to be father father daughter bonding time. No, no, I I don't think that she's excited about dealing with Lobo here. But I mean, given these two, we can be. Well, no, I'm not even going to go there. Never mind. <laughs> maybe they can bond over space dolphins. Maybe so. Maybe so. The nice house on the lake, number one of twelve. Written by James Tynan IV, art by Alvaro Martinez Bueno, colors by Jordi Belair, and letters by And World Design. It's James Tynan writing horror. If you're not reading it, what the fuck are you doing? Um, Like, unless you just don't like horror comics, that would be about the only reason I can think of. It's going to be great. Go read it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Iron Man Annual, number one, which is the first chapter of the Infinite Destinies crossover, uh, originally announced in... Like, April of 2020, uh, bumped to this year. Uh, this is written by Jed McKay, art is by Ibrahim Roberson, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by Joe Caramagna. This is dealing with the fact that after, what event was it where the gauntlet was destroyed and the stones were destroyed? In Infinity War? Is that what you're talking about? Oh, no, you're talking about the, uh, the recent version, where the yes. stones ended up in people? I think it was called Infinity War again, yeah, though. Yeah. yeah. Uh, after the events of the most recent Infinity War, uh, the stones were destroyed. The Infinity Stones were destroyed and wound up in people. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is about those people and the stones and all of their collective fates. Uh, it's going to play out over a series of annuals over the next, I think, three months. All right. And finally. Yeah. Tell me about Basilisk number one, Brian. Well, it's from Boom Studios, who've been hitting it out of the park lately. And it's, I, I'm shocked that the title is just Basilisk. 
because I would have thought it would have been much more uh, catching with the fact that Colin Bunn is writing this. I mean, you say that, but Brian, as I was flipping through this week's books to make my to make sure my database had everything in it, mm-hmm. I did see Basilisk. Oh, that's a cool sounding book. What's that about? <laughs> so fair enough. It still worked for me. I guess so. Uh, uh, this is yeah. written by Colin Bunn. Yeah. Art is by Jonas Scharf. Colors are by Alex Guimaras, and letters are by Ed Dukeshire. Yeah, this is about a uh, a group of people called the Chimera. It is five individuals who are bound by like uh, as it describes it a cult like hive mind. Um, one of them has escaped from this and is now hiding out. And um, yeah, that's going to be the story. I can't. That that sounds really cool, actually. Sweet. Yeah. And that will do it for us for this week. We would like to thank Chase Parker for our intro voiceover. Panelology is a member of the Certain POV Network. If you're looking for other cool podcasts about popular culture, go to certainpov.com. You can visit us at panelologypodcast.com, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash panelology, get merch at bit.ly slash panelologymerch, capital P, capital M, or send us questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash panelologymailbag, capital P, capital M. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. Go read comics. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.